Hello and welcome to episode number 498 of Holy Crap It's Sports. I'm Pete Davis, your host on a beautiful fall afternoon. It is Monday, October 17th of 2022. It's in the 70s, going to get a 30s tonight for the first time here at the Sandy Springs Podcast Center in Laundromat. But enough about the weather. Wow, what a sports weekend. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We'll get to that. And uh, once again, I forgot my beer list. So let's drink, let's drink a Pearl today since it doesn't matter if the Astros are still in it. We'll drink some Pearl beer, which is not a bad beer, actually. Uh, it's kind of like a better version of Coors, I think. Just my opinion. We welcome yours. As always, get a t-shirt at farmhouseprintingco.com. Holy crap, it's sports. Drink up Shriners. Whatever you want, they have it. Farmhouseprintingco.com. Also, if you want to be a patron of the show, patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n now even easier and simpler than ever and just look up holy crap at sports uh, if you want to write me pete davis one at yahoo.com and if you'd like to uh, follow me on twitter pete davis one that's just fine all right let's get to it amazing weekend of sports both good and bad uh, the braves return to their old form and that's not good but future is bright but I will scold them for a bit. Also, remembering a Braves player who passed away last week. Falcons looking damn good, and the future looks even better. Uh, is Aaron Rodgers through? And how far would you drive to see the Bills play the Chiefs? MLB playoffs have been, despite the Braves' loss, very compelling. That a-hole sports writer, but I repeat myself, Bill Plaschke, turns his vitriol on his beloved Dodger bums and not our ballpark this year. A big shakeup in the Pete poll and the AP poll. UGA gets their next quarterback, maybe. A local college goes big time, and Bama fans nut up. Uh, life follows TV in a sad way, and maybe the most courageous German Ever. We don't usually praise Germans on this show. <laughs> I'm part German myself, but this time we will. We got Pete's tweets, this day in sports history, birthdays, all kinds of good stuff. I did not do the show this morning like I usually do because this is going to be a long one. That's what she said. Yes, I know. But uh, with everything that went on, there's no way I could have got that in without hurrying this morning, and I didn't want to do that. I'm not going to leave anything out. I'm going to annoy my neighbors for at least an hour and a half here. We shall see. Well, the Braves. All right, I was going to put down a lot of notes, but I just put down the basics here because we all know the drill. Just like most of the 1990s and the early 2000s into the 2010s, they got a great season. Then they lose to what really is an inferior team in the playoffs. And I say inferior, and the Phillies are just that because the best team is proven over a 162-game schedule, especially when you're going to play 19 times or so against each other in the division. And the Braves were a far better team than the Phillies this year. Just like the Dodgers were the best team in the National League this season, it was proven over a 162-game regular season. All you need, as the Braves proved last year, though, is to get hot at the right time. And the Phillies got hot last week, last week of the season. They rode it through a three games to one win over Atlanta in the NLDS. Now, Pedro Martinez had an interesting thought. I read this yesterday. A Hall of Fame pitcher says the new playoff schedule gave the division winners about a week off. The Braves, I think, had six days off. That's great for the pitchers, but not for hitters. Pedro believes that that hurt the Braves and the Dodgers, and more on the Dodgers later. If you think we feel bad about losing, the Los Angeles fans are sad and pissed, and whoo, boy, there's all kinds of stuff going on out there. They are going to keep Dave Roberts, so they've already said that. So, I don't know. They've got to do something different in the postseason. There was even a 
Ken Rosenthal, someone had an article on Twitter going, should the Dodgers do something in the postseason? Uh, duh. But anyway, the Braves too. Well, we'll figure it out. We won it last year. We're not going to be too hard on them. Hitters, though, are all about timing. And you lose that if you don't face Major League Pitching for a week. Uh, we're going to see if MLB does something about the schedule since they want more offense in the game. And the schedule right now helps only the pitchers. Uh, now let's get into the Braves. I hate it when I'm right. I went into this series worried about the Phillies because, well, frankly, history was not on our side. Uh, we lost to the Phillies in 93. I think that was the NLCS. I was there for game six when we lost a shilling. It wasn't even close. Uh, the Braves retired. They had chased the Giants all year and called them, the, I think, the last day of the season and won the last great pennant race, really, even though this was pretty good for the division this year with the Braves and the Mets. But the one in 93 was amazing, and the Braves were just kaput after that. The Phillies were fresh, and they just rolled right over them. And I was thinking, here we go again. And unfortunately, it was true. Now, I don't care what you hear from the Braves apologists and the sycophants and the Pollyannas. I'm all about pressure now, putting pressure on them and keeping pressure on them. This 2022 season is a very disappointing season. A lot of good things happen. But this Atlanta Braves team is built to win now and to win championships now, not divisions, not make the postseason. Uh, this isn't 93, 97, 98, 2000, 01, 02, 03, 04, 05, and at least three other years after that. The Braves didn't even win a postseason series between the years 2002 and 2020. 18 years went by. There was a stretch there, I think, from 2005 uh, of one, two, three, four, five, or maybe six years in a row, they never got out of the first round. 2001, 02, 03, 04, 05. Maybe one of those they did, but I think most of them they did not. It was a streak there, five or six years in a row. Embarrassing. This isn't embarrassing this year because I think they were just tired. They didn't, sh and someone said they didn't show up. You can say that. I think they showed up, but the bats were too tired. And we'll get to that as to why that is. Now, they got uh, the future bright. They got the core young players signed except Dansby. They need to sign Dansby. Otherwise, it's pro you're probably looking at uh, Arcia or Grissom, if Arcia is still signed, playing shortstop next year, which they could get by with as they did this year with Arcia playing second, Grissom playing second. And Albies will be back next year. They got valuable experience for Michael Harris, Spencer Strider, and uh, Vaughn Grissom. Uh, next year, hopefully, Mike Soroka will be back finally. If he's not, then it's time to cut ties. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Ozzy Albies will be back. Ronald Acuna Jr. will be back full strength, hopefully mentally and physically. With him and his friend Ozzy back, it'll be fun again for him. I don't think it was fun for him a lot, a lot of the year this year. Uh, the beginning when he was hurt and the second half when Ozzy was hurt. Uh, we got questions. Left field, got to do something. Uh, Rosario, Ozuna, uh, just not cutting it, not cutting it. Uh, Adam Duvall getting hurt really put the kibosh on that. Uh, not having Jorge Soler this year, hitting homers. He was hurt for a lot of the year with the Marlins there. Uh, that hurt as well. Rosario with his eye problem never really got around, even though at the end he was, he was looking a little better. Uh, next year, I wouldn't mind seeing Michael Harris lead off, tell you the truth. That's less wear and tear on Ronald's knee. And uh, I went, uh, Michael's younger and faster. I think he's faster. Well, it's just me. Left-handed uh, batter as well. I wouldn't mind seeing Michael Harris leading off next year, but we'll, we'll see. Dansby could lead off. He did a good job doing that too. Uh, the bats in the postseason, especially Riley and Swanson, uh, 
They look tired. They look slow out there. Matt Olson just kept on going. No one can complain about uh, not signing Freddie because as someone on Twitter pointed out, Freddie Freeman's season lasted eight hours longer. No, no, no. Freddie Freeman's season lasted four hours longer than the Brave season. The whole thing with Matt Olson versus Freddie, oh, my God, what, what's going to happen in the postseason? Freddie struck out to end the Dodgers postseason on a pitch in the dirt from Josh Hader. Remember last year? I think it was the only home run from a left-handed batter that Hader gave up all season. It was in the playoffs for the Brewers, and it was to left center, mainly center field, and it won the game, basically, in, in the series, basically, for the, for the Braves. That was Freddie Freeman. Last night, or the night, no, Saturday night, it looked like he had no clue what to do with Hader. Hader looks back, too. He was, and you know I can tell he's back. He's not only throwing as hard as hell 100 miles an hour, but he was, he was completely fooling them with his off-speed stuff. He had total confidence in it. And like I said, struck out Freddie and uh, the ball pretty much in the dirt. Freddie was clueless. I think it was three pitches, maybe something like that. So all this talk about Olsen versus Freeman, it didn't matter. Olsen went in there hot. Freeman did okay, too, in the season. Great in the season. Almost won the batting title. And he won the Dodgers fans over after the early season, them bitching about him still wanting to be a Brave, which he did. But uh, that was normal. But he was a Dodger there at the end, and he's a Dodger now. Once he comes back, you know, after he's retired – and then, then we can have the ceremonies and all that. But right now, he's a Dodger, damn it. And I feel the same way about him. Well, not quite as I do about Dusty Baker. I've never cared for Dusty Baker. Do I want to see him win one for him? Yeah, okay, why not? I won't mind it if he wins it with the Astros. But you nobody, nobody wants to see the Astros win. So let me get to a point I was going to make about Dansby and Austin and Matt Olson. Enough with the Iron Man crap. I don't want to see those guys playing 162 games anymore. I don't want to see them playing 158. I want to see them rest at least once a month. I want them sitting on the bench, getting physically and mentally back in it. Remember when Matt Olson was in the worst slump of his career and Snickers set him down for one game, I think, up in Philadelphia? And after that, he was on a tear? Uh, yeah, that helped him a lot. That would have helped Austin and especially with Austin's body type. I don't think 162 a year. Now, and look at Do you want a Mike Schmidt over his career? Do you want a Scott Rowland, who are both about the same body types? Or do you want a Troy Gloss, who started off great with the Angels and then faded? He was here with the Braves because the wear and tear got to him. He was a big guy. Uh, I, can, I don't want to see that happen to the Mississippi Masher. I want to see these guys get a few days off next year when they're playing against teams like the Rockies or something. Uh, well, not out in Colorado. They all want to bat when they're out there. And Dansby, who's in his prime right now, well, he's about almost you know, around 30 years old uh, next year. That, I don't want to see 162. I don't want to see playing every inning. You don't have to. You've got a great bench. You don't need to do that. So I know they want. that's the manager's job to protect the players from themselves sometimes. So Snicker needs to do a better job on that. Um, another thing he did – I mean, come on, from June 1st, they were probably the best team in baseball for a long period, long stretch of the season. So you can't really – I'm not mad at Snicker or anything like that. You know, I, I argue every once in a while with his lineup. But other than that, you really can't bitch too much about what he did this year. Uh, let's see. We have talked about Matt and Freeman and all that stuff. Uh, and what are the odds that Charlie Morton, poor guy, gets knocked out of two straight postseasons hit by a line drive? Didn't hurt us last year, 
But it definitely, I think, hurt us this year. Now, they've signed him for one more season and an option of another, I think. And $20 million is a lot for a guy who's probably going to be your third or fourth pitcher next year. And uh, if I'm Dansby Swanson, I'm going, you just gave Charlie, and we love Charlie, but I'm more important than Charlie, and he is. He's your shortstop. Uh, we talked about this on the Kimmer Show. I still like Trey Turner, but he made an error and another miscue that cost the Dodgers a game against the Padres. And he'll do that every now and then. Plus, he gets hurt sometimes because he's a small, wiry guy. But he's fast, and he hits home runs. He's just a great ball player. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him out there it's, uh, instead of Dansby if they don't re-sign Dansby, but they're going to have to pay Turner a lot of money. So why not pay it Dansby? Dansby's the better fielder. In fact... Right now, I wouldn't say this entering this season. I would say uh, Carlos Correa would be the number one guy. But between him and Bogarts and Turner and Swanson, and I think there's one or two others out there as well, I'm picking Dansby Swanson right now. He's the complete package. He goes in slumps every now and then. He came going one at the end. I think that was wear and tear. But I'm sorry. He's in his prime right now, and he's getting – the last two years, he's just gotten better. So I hope they re-sign him. I mentioned earlier the Dodgers. All right, that's enough about the Braves. You know what I feel about them. I mean, the Braves are my – I have two number one teams in my life, Ole Miss and the Atlanta Braves. That's live and die. More lately with the Rebels, and we'll talk about them later. They're 7-0 for, the I think, the second time in the last 50 years. The other time was under Hugh Freeze a few years ago, I think. Um, They're not going to remain undefeated. I don't think they can beat Alabama. Uh, they may have trouble. With L- they're playing in Baton Rouge this weekend. We'll see what happens there. They're on the, they're the national game on CBS. Unfortunately, I guess that means that Gary Danielson is going to be there and Brad Nessler calling the games. Uh, hopefully, they won't lay an egg on national television because this is what they do. They they jump ahead. They jumped ahead of Kentucky, fourteen nothing. Let them back in. Jumped ahead of Auburn, what twenty one to nothing. Let them back in. I don't know what it is about Lane and not uh, adjusting, but he the other team adjusts and he seems to have trouble doing that. And he lets game he lets teams back in the game. If he does that to LSU, coming off that big win down in Gainesville against Florida. Brian Kelly may have uh, his first really big signature win in the SEC, and that was big in Florida. But if he beats the number seven team in the country, uh, almost like arch rival because the two teams, the two states hate each other, uh, that could be interesting. But anyway, let's get to the Dodgers. Dodgers. The L.A. Dodgers. God, I've always hated the Dodgers. I've always hated the Dodgers. I like some other players from the past, but I hate the Dodgers. Um. Their ballot, bats went silent, too. It's, it's amazing. By the time Saturday night came around with the Tennessee-Alabama game, with the Dodgers losing the way they did, the craziness in San Diego, my God, it rained. It rained, and they pulled the tarp out in San Diego. I can count on my one hand how many times it rained in the three years I lived out there. There was the marine layer and the fog that rolled in every morning there in Ocean Beach, but it really wasn't rain. Well, it rained out there. And, I, and then there was the goose which now the Goose is – they're going to have to bring Goose Gossage back, the former Padre, and have him throw out a pitch for one of the, one of the first games of the NLCS. Come on, you've got to have Goose Gossage back because of the Goose that landed in the outfield at Dodger Stadium. And, you know, the Padres have been winning ever since, even though it seemed to help the Dodgers at the time, but not anymore. So, anyway, it rained in San Diego. Little brother finally beat big brother. The inferiority complex is thrown out the window or off the pier at Ocean Beach where I used to surf, basically, and we used to watch the sharks swim around. Anyway, um, the San Diegans hate L.A., 
LA just doesn't really think much about San Diego except to maybe uh, it's it's a stop and eat lunch on the way to Mexico or something. But uh, San Diegans hate it. I remember when I lived out there, you'd walk around. The Padres in 84 went to the World Series. They had a great year. And you could hear people listening to the radio. And when there was a Dodger game on, all you, you heard Vin Scully. Blah, 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 blah. You know, sorry, I'm not a big Vin Scully fan. I know what he did for the game, but still. And that's part of it, living out there. I grew to not like Vin Scully even more than when I hated him here when I was in Atlanta. He was the Dodgers guy. And he always mispronounced the Falcons' name as Falcons on CBS. And it's like, you know, screw you. But anyway, uh, don't listen to me about the Dodgers. Listen to bald asshat Bill Plaschke of the L.A. Times. You remember sad Bill, the guy who hated Atlanta, still does, really hates Truist Park because we don't have nightly beatings and stabbings and shootings in the parking lot there like they do out in Chavez Ravine. It's just not as exciting here in Atlanta. It looked like, you know, he called it an outlet mall or something like that. Mm-mm-mm. Well, Bill has written a column about the Dodgers. <laughs> they, they used to be a great newspaper. I used to get it when I lived out there in the 80s. Scott Osler and Jim Murray. It, it was must, uh, must read. You, the LA Times is a great newspaper. It's not anymore because they have the likes of a Bill Plasky writing for him. But I tell you what, he put together a good article on this. Not just because he's bashing the Dodgers. It was well written. Here's what he did. I'm not going to read you the whole column, but here, here's the highlights of it. And if By the time Saturday night rolled around after Tennessee and the Dodgers and everything, the Braves' loss early in the day felt like it had happened three days before. That was so jam-packed. In fact, Saturday night, we talked about it, and Kimmer says he missed every great ending. There was like four sporting events going on, and they were all ending at the same exact time. And he said he missed all four of them. Brett Barney texted me and showed me he had a picture of three or four TVs set up in his house. I used to have two. I only have one now. But he had like three or four set up, which uh, thank God he's got a wife that loves sports. But anyway, here's Bill Plasky's part of his column about the Dodgers. They have flopped before. Countless wonderful summers cruelly melted into autumn ashes, but they've never blown it like this. They have been embarrassed before. Many memorable summer marches ruined by staggering October stumbles. But they've never been humiliated like this. Barely a week after setting a franchise record with 111 regular season victories, the biggest winners in Dodgers history have blundered into a vastly different moniker, the biggest losers. On a rare rainy Saturday night in San Diego's Petco Park, an even stranger event occurred. The sight of the San Diego Padres dancing across the field after sucker punching the Dodgers into next season. Now, here's my aside here. Losing to the third place Phillies is bad. But the difference between the Dodgers and the Padres, not just historically, but this year, is record setting. Let's get into this. Little brother has knocked out big brother. The nail has spiked the hammer. The shadow has eclipsed the sun. In a 5-3 comeback victory, the Padres clinched the best-of-five National League Division Series three games to one while sending the Dodgers to the darkest corners of their legacy. This is the biggest disappointment in Dodger history. This is the biggest upset in Dodger history. In strictly a baseball sense, this is arguably the lowest point in Dodger history. Now, another aside here. I would say the 1950s continuously losing every year, uh, it seemed, to the Yankees in the World Series. Your crosstown rivals sucked. You only beat them once in 1955. Other than that, you lost to them several years, including the next year. You lost them in seven-game series in heartbreaking fashion. 
But anyway, uh, back to the thing here. Dave Roberts, the manager, quote, shock factor very high, disappointment very high. It's crushing. The crush was finalized with a strikeout of Freddie Freeman, a stadium-shaking roar from the crowd, a giant infield hug by bouncing players, and a taunting sprint around the bases by pitcher Blake Snell while holding, what else, a ceramic goose. The Dodgers have never been this cooked. Get it? Good. They won more regular games than all but three teams in Major League history, yet their postseason lasted all of four nights. The Dodgers won 22 more games than the Padres during the long summer, yet they could beat them only once in four October tries. Based on difference in regular season winning percentage, this was the second biggest upset in postseason history and the biggest in 116 years. The chance of beat L.A. in the sight of thousands of flapping yellow towels will live in Dodgers lore forever. So will the sight of the league's best offense spinning and staggered. The sight of the league's best bullpen lost in confusion. The sight of the league's most powerful franchise over the last decade crumbling under the pressure again. Ten postseason appearances, nine postseason failures. Nine West Division championships and just one World Series championship in a COVID-shortened season of just 60 games, the 2020 title, this is important, the 2020 title looking more deserving of an asterisk with each passing nightmare. Now, we all kind of had that in the back of our minds. Part of me kind of was glad the Braves didn't win it that year because people would have said, oh, it was a shortened season, blah, blah, blah. It's the same crap we caught last year. Well, the Braves weren't the best team. Well, guess what? It was a 162-game schedule, and they won it all. Da-da. You can't say it was tainted in any way, shape, or form. Knock on wood. Hold on a second. Uh, in fact, in the back of my mind, 95 was always a little weird for me because that was the strike lockout 94-95 season where they came back a little late. I don't think they played the whole full season that year. They played most of it, though. And everybody had forgotten it by the time the World Series rolled around when the Braves beat the Indians. So no one really looks at that as even slightly illegitimate. But it was always kind of there in the back of my mind. Well, last year, of course, just threw all that out the window. The Braves were the best team. But you have Bill Plasky bringing up the point that maybe 2020, the the Dodgers were so fresh because they only had to play 60 games. But if you get the Dodgers into a 162-game schedule, they're going to blow it. Uh, History says, yes, they will. Anyway, back to the uh, article here. Uh, Robert says, yeah, there's certainly fans are going to think it was a wasted season. I don't think there's anybody in our clubhouse in uniform or with the Dodgers that feels that way. But yeah, this one hurts. Quote, this is bad. This is real bad. It ended worse Saturday than one could possibly imagine as an array of relievers from the Dodgers revolving bullpen blew a three nothing lead by allowing five Padres runs in the seventh inning. And the focus has returned squarely to Roberts. Him again. The man who has been perceived as the villain in so many of these collapses will take the heat again, question all winner for the decisions that led to that fateful inning. There's nothing Roberts could say about any of it, really. It's all been said before. It's all been seen before. This painfully punctuates the narrative scripted by the Dodgers' postseason failures during their past 10 years of regular season domination. This is the best example of why many fans have been unable to enjoy the six months of winning without waiting for the other shoe to drop. Sound familiar, Braves fans? That was the 1990s for us. I remember my friend Mercedes going, I almost wish they didn't go in the playoffs if all they're going to do is lose in the first round. And she summed it up for all of us. Back to the article. And this time that shoe belongs to the San Diego freaking Padres. 
This is worse than Clayton Kershaw's meltdowns against the Cardinals. This is worse than Corey Seager failing to cover third base against the Mets. This is worse than being overrun by the Cubs. This is worse, worse than Howie Kendrick's grand slam for the Nationals. This is worse than the front office's pitching mismanagement against the Braves. This is even worse than being cheated by the Astros in 2017. I don't agree. And being whipped by the Red Sox in 2018 because, well, at least both of those defeats were in the World Series. In each of those years, at least they won two playoff rounds. Justin Turner said, they all suck. He's lived through many of them. Obviously, the goal is to win a championship. To fall short of that in any round doesn't matter. By the way, I don't have the full numbers in front of me. They mentioned this earlier. Justin Turner, going to take a sip of the Pearl Bear here. Justin Turner owns just about every offensive record in the history of the Dodgers going all the way to Brooklyn. All those great players, the Duke Snyders and all they had, Jackie Robinson, Turner owns most of the offensive records. That's how good a player he's been. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. Uh, this time, even with the greatest run differential in baseball in 83 years, the Dodgers couldn't even win two playoff games. And to think, this was going to be the season the story finally changed. This was going to be the season they would overcome the stigma of the one shortened season championship. This was the season they were going to win a World Series after a full season for the first time in 34 years. Remember Dave uh, Roberts back in his, uh, March or May? On the Dan Patrick Show, Dave Roberts, quote, we are winning the World Series this year, put it on record, end quote. Put those words in the trash, along with every other belief about the supposedly greatest of Dodger teams. Finally uh, confronted with the sort of playoff pressure that was missing during their steamrolling summer, the Dodgers cracked against a Padres team playing its best baseball with nothing to lose. The starry Dodger batting order led by the big three of Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, and Freddie Freeman, only Freeman consistently showed up. The professional Dodger fielding, a botched grounder by Turner, basically cost game true. That's Trey Turner, and they never seem truly sharp again. Meanwhile, the pods advance to the NLCS in a battle that will highlight a renewed franchise that has truly fought its way out of under the big blue shadow. I think it's about time we start talking about San Diego as a sports town, sports town, said former pods pitcher Jack Peavy. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Slow your brakes here. We've lost the Chargers. This is the only game in town. The Padre fans are absolutely showing out from Del Mar on down. It feels good. It feels electric. As for the Dodgers, well, for the ninth time in 10 years, they've turned out the lights early. But it's never felt this dark. That was Bill Plasky in the L.A. Times. And to all this, and to Bill, I say, and to all Dodger fans, ha-ha. And yeah, a lot of people, Dodger fans, say, you, you concentrate on the Dodgers and your Braves blew it too. Yeah, it takes my mind off of it. <laughs> but we won it all last year in a full season. And you won it two years ago, and you're not going to win it this year. So it's going to be three years since your last one, and that one's kind of tainted. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they can say the same to us, you know, but as I said, we've got one. It's not even got dust on it from last October. But doesn't it seem like it was only three, four months ago the Braves won it? I still have a cigar that Kimmer gave me to smoke in celebration, and I keep forgetting to smoke it, and I forgot for an entire year now. So I'll probably smoke it now. By the way, I was sitting here yesterday, and I smelled cigarette smoke wafting through the window. Somebody was smoking downstairs in the parking lot. God, that brings back memories of my aunts and uncles and grandparents smoking, of sitting out on a steamy summer night, laying on the back of a, the trunk of a Chevy Impala uh, as kids, listening to my uncle tell stories and my dad talk and my grandfather talk and just trade stories, my great uncles. 
there in Mississippi, just, you know, telling about their youth and growing up and how things used to be and the stories that my uncle was one of the funniest, naturally funniest human beings I ever met and just sitting back here. And every time I smell that, I, you know, I, I go back to uh, summers in Little Rock where my aunt and my grandmother would be smoking, watching a baseball game or something and laughing about something and just smelling the smoke. Uh, you know, I know it's not good for you and I don't, I've never really smoked myself except for cigars every now and then, but whew, gosh, it brings back memories. That smells will do that for you. So I'm expecting an Astros Padres World Series, but who knows? It would be nice for Pods fans to get one. Now, no more. I have friends there, but I always want to keep bragging rights because we got two. They can't get more than one. And nobody wants to see the Strohs win just like last year. It'd be a worst, the worst nightmare for MLB right now is to get a Cleveland-San Diego World Series because, frankly, the Guardians are a nice story, but they're boring as all hell to watch. They hit about as much as an armless slot machine. Or a ballless pachinko machine, which I have a pachinko machine. It's not working right now. So anyway, that's enough about baseball. Whew. And that was enough. There's always next year. NFL news. How about those Falcons? 28-14, to 14, the win in the bins over ancient nemesis, the 49ers. After the birds jumped out to a quick 14-0 lead, only to see the Niners come back to tie, the NFL on CBS Twitter account openly mocked Atlanta. They were oddly silent, though, when the Falcons scored two more touchdowns to open up the lead again. Funny how that works. Maybe I missed their tweets mocking San Francisco. I just don't think I did. Uh, Marcus Mariota has found his niche. Pass little, hand the ball off, run a little yourself, and win, baby. Marcus didn't pass or miss a pass until the fourth quarter. Now, we still got to work on the crowd. It seemed on TV like it was just 60% Falcons fans, uh, but more ATL fans will come with more winning. Arthur Smith has this team playing fundamentally great football. They're playing well together. It looks like they're buying into a system, and it's a fun team to watch. There's no quitting these guys. The Falcons of the past few years would have wilted under San Fran coming back to tie, not these guys. Caleb Huntley continues to impress. I didn't like him in the preseason, but I love him now. Tyler Algier still needs to work on his burst. But at the end of the game, had some powerful runs that uh, sealed the deal. And it was like watching him at BYU. And I watched him several games, I'm telling you. By the way, I also watched Bailey Zappi at Western Kentucky in several games. And he might be the real deal up there. Mac Jones may be looking around for another team at some point. But Zappi, I know it's a you know, small, uh, small, what do you call those things? I forget, but it's not a lot of info with just a few games, but whatever. Kyle Pitts caught his first TD on American soil. The other one was in London, much to the delight of fantasy fans on Twitter. Uh, Drake London looks good and takes no guff from the 49ers because he's a tough cookie. Uh, they're off to Cincinnati this Sunday. The Bengals came from behind at the last to nip the Saints in the big toilet bowl yesterday. Always so good to see Aints fans crying in their Sazeracs. They're ball Sazeracs. All the other three teams in the NFC South lost, so the Falcons are 3-3 three and three and tied with Tampa Bay, who owns the tiebreaker at the moment because of the referees coddling little Tommy Brady. Uh, Mike Greenberg, once again, mentioned the Falcons should be atop by themselves because uh, they should have won that game, and the refs stole it from them. And did you see the game yesterday, the Chiefs and the Bills? And the Bills can't blow this. They, they have to have all their games in Buffalo. they got to win out here. Um, Great game as always. And that uh, Josh Allen, that leap he did over uh, one of those defenders of the Chiefs there. Um, why did I bring this up? Oh, so Mike Greenberg was talking about there was at one point where the Chiefs player, Chris 
Jones, I think, some literally stuck his foot out and tripped Josh Allen. And the ref is standing right there. How could they miss that? They're supposedly watching these quarterbacks like a hawk. And Mike Greenberg said this morning on ESPN, if that had been Tom Brady, they would have arrested the Chiefs player, which is kind of funny. Anyway, uh, what else we got? The Panthers are shopping running back Christian McCaffrey. No thank you. He's always hurt, and he costs too damn much. The Packers lost their third game in a row, looking dismal at home against the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Uh, and I hate to say this, but the NFL is better when the Jets are winning. I'm sorry. Uh, after every game, Roger says he has to play better. Then he goes out and plays worse. They obviously miss Devontae Adams. And if push comes to shove, see what I did there, push and Devontae. I think the pack are fading fast, and they're boring. After the win, a Jets player did the unthinkable. Rookie cornerback Sauce Gardner, what a name. He grabbed a cheese head from a Jets fan and put it on his head and was running around. <laughs> He strutted off the field as he went to the tunnel, uh, the wrong tunnel, as it turned out. Uh, Gardner was caught from behind by Alan Lazard, a Packers receiver, who knocked the block of cheese off. Uh, Gardner then picked it up and put it back on again, but still pretty funny. And we now know the answers to the musical question, how far would you drive to play for the Buffalo Bills? It takes over 15 hours across five states to get from Orchard Park, New York, to Arrowhead Stadium by car. That's a distance of nearly 1,000 miles from Buffalo to Kansas City. Bill safety Jordan Poyer made that trip and back again to play in the win over the Chiefs on Sunday. He was not medically cleared to fly due to resolving pneumothorax. Or, as we like to say in the business, a collapsed lung. Uh, Poirier was, not, was permitted to play, but they were not comfortable with him flying with the air pressure that comes with being up there with the air pressure. Uh, Chris Mortensen broke this story, by the way. Great guy. The Bills arranged for Poirier and his family to travel to and from KC in a van. I hope it had a spray-painted unicorn on the side of it. Uh, the All-Pro safety had four tackles in the game, played 100% of the defensive snaps. Before the game, he did not stay at the team hotel. He lived in a van down by the river. Take a break here. Ah, yeah. Told you it's going to be a long one. That's what she said. The Titans have an agreement in place with Nashville Mayor John Cooper. They're going to build a new stadium. Hell, they just built one 20-something years ago. Not a very good one. I remember when it opened Nissan Stadium, whatever they were calling it at the time. And to me, it looked like a glorified college stadium that you'd find maybe if, if Vanderbilt had ponied up or maybe NC State or something like that. It didn't really look like an NFL stadium. It didn't look all that big. I mean, it was serviceable. It was nice, but it was, seemed like it was kind of thrown together a little bit. And now they're going to build a new one, allegedly, that's going to have a dome, which is very smart because the weather gets a little dicey in Nashville, even more than it does here. They're a little up, higher up there. Uh, latitude and uh, altitude, I believe. Alexa, what altitude is Nashville? Nashville is 597 feet above sea level. Okay. Gosh, maybe Atlanta's higher atlanta what altitude is atlanta At alexa what altitude is atlanta answer me atlanta is 738 yeah. feet alexa stop yeah atlanta's 200 feet higher i did not know that because if you drive to nashville it literally seems like once you get north of atlanta you're going uphill the whole damn way and when you're coming back it seems you're going downhill the whole way that's weird anyway um 
What else we got here? It's going to be located uh, east of Nissan Stadium along the East Bank. Well, Nissan's right there on the East Bank, too. you got to cross the bridge. Uh, when I was there 20-something years ago, there was a lot of land over that side. Uh, it's probably built up a little bit. Nashville's growing. It's going to cost $2.2 billion, but it has to be approved by the Metro Council. So watch this be dragged out a little bit. But they want, they want Super Bowls there, Final Fours, and they'll get it if they get the, uh, if they get the uh, dome. College football now. The Bulldogs have found their quarterback of the future, the 2024 gunslinger by the name of Ryan Puglisi. After missing on five-star Arch Manning in the 23 class, they went out to the 24 class and landed a commitment from one of the fastest-rising quarterbacks in the country, six foot three, 205-pounder out of Avon Old Farms. And you might think, where is that, down there by Vidalia or something? No, Avon Old Farms is in Connecticut. Uh, has been on Georgia's radar since earlier this spring and earned an offer from the Bulldogs June 16th. He wowed the Bulldogs staff, had a pretty good camp performance. So everybody, uh, he says he loves the staff, so he's coming down here from Connecticut. Now, the last time they went that far, they went to Washington to get that you-know-who. That didn't really work out. It seemed to work out when they got the local boy, didn't it? I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to argue with Kirby. He's just doing too damn well these days. Uh, Georgia is still number one in both the Pete poll and the AP poll, but we differ after that. Let me look at the Pete poll first and find that for you. That's right here, the old Pete poll. Nobody can beat a Pete poll, as somebody used to say. We used to have things when I did my show called the Pete Meet, and uh, John Gray, Pantless John, uh, would say things like, oh, you can't beat a Pete Meat. And I would disagree with him. All right, let me find, uh, as soon as I find the damn Pete, uh, Pete Paul here. I should have written this one out for you. Did not. My fault. Oh, wait a second. Oh, come on. Ah, no, no, that's the AP Paul. AP Paul always comes out after the Pete Paul. Here we go, Pete Paul. UGA, I still got him number one. That's two weeks in a row. But number two, big shakeup. I got Michigan. That's right. I got Michigan. Now, they have the AP poll. If I can pull this out here. That's what she said. Uh, has Ohio State still number two? No, I think Michigan's back, uh, has jumped them. Ohio State number three. I have Clemson at fourth now. They have uh, Tennessee at number three. They put them all the way up in the top four. And they got Michigan number four. So their top four AP is Georgia, Ohio State, Tennessee, and Michigan. Mine is uh, Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, and Clemson. I have Tennessee just out of it at number five. And then I have Alabama number seven, then Ole Miss eighth, Texas Christian ninth, and no, wait a minute. Bama is sixth. I'm sorry, Tennessee fifth, Bama sixth, Ole Miss seventh, Texas Christian is eighth, Oklahoma State is ninth, and Wake Forest is tenth. That's my top ten. AP uh, has Clemson fifth, then Alabama number six. Ole Miss 7th, TCU 8th, UCLA 9th, and Oregon 10th. After that, AP has Oklahoma State, USC, Wake Forest, Syracuse, and Utah 15th. Then Penn State, Kansas State, Illinois, Kentucky, Texas, Cincinnati at 21. North Carolina, NC State, Mississippi State, and Tulane makes it in there. Now, Tulane's interesting. That Willie Fritz guy, his name has been bandied about. Maybe the next Georgia Tech coach. I forget how, how old he is. God, his daughter is so hot. She's in the media. She is so hot. She's always hugging him after the wins. God, she's beautiful. Um, the Green Wave are 6-1. and one. Looking good this year. Uh, I'm telling you, 
he may be your next Georgia Tech coach. He's a pretty good coach. Uh, let's see what else I got. Uh, Pete Pohl. After number 10, I got USC, then Oregon, Utah, UCLA, and I got Kansas State 15th, then Penn State. I, I don't even know why I still have Penn State in there. That's probably a dumb move. Cincy, Illinois, Mississippi State, then Kansas at number 20, UNC, Kentucky, Syracuse, and Tulane, and then NC State at number 25. So that's what I have there. Anyway, uh, the Volunteers win over the Tide. Finally, and for the first time since 2006, a barn burner. Sorry, Auburn fans, bringing up bad memories. Uh, it was one for the ages. Reminded me of that great shootout in the late 60s between Archie and Bama on national television. Uh, put college football on the TV map, to tell you the truth. It was the first nationally televised game on ABC on a Saturday night. Uh, speaking of Ole Miss, they're now alone on top of the SEC West. Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> a 100% Bryce Young and the Crimson Tide probably win that game Saturday night in Tennessee, but his arm looked a little off at times. It's their defense, though, that is out of whack. Uh, they gave up more points, 52, than they had since 1907. 07 uh, to Sewanee, S-E-W-A-N-E-E. So, no, not the river but the school, which used to be in the Southeastern Conference, I kid you not. They're also known as the University of the South. They live in Tennessee, somewhere in the middle there. A pretty campus, I'm told. More on Suwannee later, because we'll get a little deep dive into SEC history. Now, of course, Bama fan took this all in stride, the loss, going on social media and confessing the utmost confidence in their coaches and their program. Or uh, they said something like Terrell said, I see Pete Golding, the D.C., continues to drop his best pass rushers like we're in the Big 12. <laughs> Another person wrote, Bama probably won't get back to the dominance under Saban that we had from 2008 to 17. We're still accumulating elite talent, but the coaching and development, not there. Bill O'Brien and Golding, uh, coordinator duo, one of the worst ever. Nobody is going to take them off our hands. Uh, I think Bill O'Brien's going to get a job somewhere. Uh, Cameron uh, tweeted, all he did, he tweeted a video of someone choking the life out of a Kermit the Frog doll, Kermit the Frog here, and said it was Nick Saban handling Pete Golden by the neck in the locker room. <laughs> and by the way, SEC has fined Tennessee for rushing the field $100,000. Uh, they tore down the goalposts and deposited them in the nearby Tennessee River. They expect it to be a new coral reef and attract exotic fishes like the gar. Uh, the university is literally asking for donations to pay for new posts. What? You know how many millions that, that one game just brought in? What are you asking people? And people are doing it. Last I heard, they were close to 90% of getting their goal. And then they put together, you, know, you, can, you can give us money that represents the score of the game or our score and how many points we got. I'm going, no, no, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. That's way too much arithmetic and ciphering for the average Vols fan. Now, come on. It's, you know, you just want them. I mean, it's enough to ask him to soberly get their boat to the dock in time for the game. I'm just kidding. I have friends that are Tennessee fans. We can, we can joke amongst the SEC. If any of you Penn State, Notre Dame, or Syracuse people pipe up, we're going to clock you. All right. Uh, here's more about SEC history that you're going to love. I need to put this in the totally biased guide to Southern College football, by the way. Uh, 80 years ago, Sewanee co-founded the Southeastern Conference with 12 other colleges, all of which are still in the NCAA's football bowl subdivision, the FBS, 11 of them in major conferences, 10 in the SEC. 
Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Kentucky, LSU, Mississippi, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Tulane, Vanderbilt, and Sewanee, the lost school of the SEC. Now, they had a saying up there, on the seventh day they rested, prominent on the campus at Swanee. Why? Because they had five wins in six days, and on the seventh day they rested. Absorb that while I take a sip of the pearl. Get this. In 1899, on November 9th, Swanee beat Texas 12 to nothing. The next day on the 10th, they beat Texas A&M 10 to nothing. The next day on the 11th, three days in a row, they shut out Tulane 23 to nothing. Two days later on the 13th, they shut out LSU 34 to nothing. And the day after that, the 14th, 1899 of November, Suwannee 12, Ole Miss nothing. Those are not misprints. Nor are the scores of Suwannee's seven other wins that year, all but one by shutout. They were 12-0. They were champions of the South, of the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association. And the right was known then afterwards as the Ironmen, one of the most accomplished college teams ever. And they beat all those teams in one week. Uh, they consistently won into the 1920s. They got winning all-time records over some of today's uh, greatest football programs. Uh, against Louisiana State, they're 6-3. and three. Auburn, they're 7-4-1. and one. Ole Miss, 8-6-1. and one. Both Georgia and Georgia Tech have the same record against Swanee. Seven, actually, Swanee has the upper hand. Seven wins, five losses, one tie. And yet, Swanee current athletic director Mark Webb said with a laugh, there is zero probability of us ever playing them again. <laughs> In the late 1800s and early 1900s, many private schools were the same size as the public counterparts, and some adopted football earlier. And most mined the nearby prep schools, a lot near Swanee, which is an all-male college at the time, for a lot of the talent. But with time, all those public institutions became much bigger and committed more and more to football, and Suwannee couldn't keep up. Not with recruiting, not with the rise of the scholarships, not with hiring of coaches, and not with the success of the others. So on September 30th, 1933, the Suwannee Purple Tigers, how'd that name come about, visited the University of Kentucky for the first football game in the newly created SEC. The score, Kentucky 7, Suwannee nothing. And it never got better. Except in 1938, Swanee lost to Florida by just four points, 10 to 6. Other than that, pretty dismal. Swanee lost all 37 of its SEC games played from 1933 to 40. The Tigers were shut out more than twice, uh, 26 times, for every game in which they scored, which was only 11. In 1935, they went 0 and 6 in the conference and outscored 189 to 0. In 1937, it was the SEC 204, Swanee 7. The final aggregate SEC score, SEC teams 1,163, Suwannee 84. <laughs> At least the fans weren't around to see the carnage. With a small on-campus stadium that made road games more lucrative, brought in more money, Suwannee played every SEC contest away from home. Never had a homecoming. Never got a dinner. Suwannee became what you might call the homecoming game, so Suwannee left the SEC more than two decades before Georgia Tech did in 1964 and Tulane did in 66. And now you know the rest of the story. Poor little Swanee.
Everybody says it's a lovely, and some people say it's the loveliest campus east of the Mississippi. So I've never been there. Uh, locally, Kennesaw State's going to join Conference USA in 2024. This happened on Friday, if you missed it. The Owls transitioned from the FCS to the Football Bowl Subdivision, FBS. Conference USA previously added Liberty, Jacksonville State, New Mexico State, and Sam Houston State, effective next year. Kennesaw State will give the league 10 schools in two years. Uh, let's see. Kennesaw State started playing in 2015. They've been an FCS power under Coach Brian Bohannon. Uh, Brian Bohannon, didn't he used to do a late-night national talk show? Uh, the Owls won three Big South Conference titles over the past five years uh, before joining the Atlantic Sun this season. Uh, they're 63-19. and 19. I, I, I don't know if, if they won this, this weekend. If they played, they're 64. I don't know. 63-19. and 19. They have four FCS playoff appearances. Huh. 2026 is going to be earliest the Owls could play their Conference USA Championship or participate in a bowl game. NCAA rules require that teams transitioning to FBS go through a two-year period that they are ineligible for the postseason. I guess what's James Madison is probably going through that right now, and they were having a pretty good season. They lost, I think, to Georgia Southern, didn't they, over the weekend? Or Georgia State. Who was it? Was it the real GSU, Georgia State, or the pretenders down there in Statesboro or wherever they are? Americus. Someone pointed it out to me once that I had the wrong city down there. They're either in Statesboro or they're in Statesboro. We're going to just go with that. Uh, congrats to the Owls for moving up. Moving on up. NFL news. Devontae Adams pushing of the cameraman helper a couple weeks ago has faded from the news, but a story out of South Carolina can show just how dangerous being that close to the action can actually be. A longtime sports reporter has died after a sideline collision with players during a recent high school football game. His name was Eddie Litaker. Spent decades covering sports in the Midlands and PD regions of South Carolina. Passed away Sunday a week ago at McLeod Regional Medical Center in Florence. He was just 56, had a broken leg Friday night, October 7th, when he was caught up in a collision on the sidelines between Lakewood and Lake City High Schools. Hospitalized on Sunday, he died when a blood clot traveled from his injured leg into his lungs and the hospital staff couldn't revive him. Lidiker is a Sumter, South Carolina native, was a freelance sports reporter for The Item in Sumter. He also wrote for The Item. He was managing editor of The Manning Times. Um, one of my ex-girlfriends lives in Manning. Uh, his byline appeared in papers throughout the state. A fundraiser has been created by Item sports staff to assist Lidiker's family with funeral expenses. Probably didn't make a lot of money writing for newspapers, especially small newspapers. But he loved it. He covered it. And uh, sad Eddie Litaker. And gosh, there are times in the sidelines, man, those guys have come crashing in. There. Joe Paterno broke his leg. There's been several coaches that broke the leg. I think Dan Devine and others. Uh, track. On Saturday night, Carl Ludwig Hermann Luz Long's men's long jump silver medal from the 1936 Berlin, Germany Olympics sold for over $488,000, making the Germans the most valuable silver medal ever sold at public auction. Why? Uh, Carl Luz Long was killed in 1943. He was serving in the German army. Long and American Jesse Owens' friendship forged at the Olympics is one of the sport's most enduring images. After Owens, a black man, set an Olympic men's long jump record, the white Long embraced Owens before walking arm-in-arm in, arm in front of a crowd of 110,000, including Adolf Hitler, who wanted the Games to showcase the Aryan race's superiority. 
Uh, Owens once said, it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. You can melt down all the medals and cups I have, and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24-karat friendship I felt for Lose Long at that moment. The most expensive Olympic medal ever sold, of course, one of four Owens golds from the same Olympics. In 2013, one of Jesse's golds sold for $1,466,574 American dollars, a record for a gold medal and then a record for any piece of Olympic memorabilia. There's a famous photo or film of them uh, walking arm in arm. I'm going to take another sip before we get back to baseball for just a second. Well, reminisce here a second. As per usual, just as I signed off this podcast Friday and uploaded it to you fine people, thank you for listening. Word came out of the death of former Brave and Hall of Famer Bruce Souter. When Souter began experimenting with his split-fingered fastball, he was not looking for a path to Cooperstown. He was just hoping to save his career. He said, I wouldn't be here without that pitch. My other stuff was A-ball, double-A at best. The split-finger made it equal. Suter, the full-bearded closer who paid for his own elbow surgery as a low minor leaguer, later pioneered the sharp dropping pitch that came to dominate big league hitters for decades, died last Thursday. He was 69. Suter was recently diagnosed with cancer. He was in hospice, surrounded by his family. One of his three sons, Chad, told AP uh, that he died up in Cartersville, Georgia. A six-time All-Star, he led the National League in saves for five years, won the 79 Cy Young Award, posted 300 saves in a 12-year career with the Cubs, Cardinals, and Braves. Played in an era when closers routinely got more than three outs. He threw more than one inning for 188 of his saves and five times pitched more than 100 innings in a season. At his bedeviling best, he tossed two perfect innings, retiring future fellow Hall of Famers Paul Molitor, Robin Yount, and Ted Simmons to finish off the Cardinals' Game 7 win over Milwaukee in the 82 World Series. The team victories, his son Chad said, counted most. I mean, he won all these awards and all this stuff, and they weren't even hung out in the house because all he cared about was winning and being respected by the other players and being a good teammate. That was his whole motivation. Suter, the fourth reliever to be elected to the Hall after Hoyt Wilhelm, another brave, Raleigh Fingers, and Dennis Eckersley. Mariano Rivera, Goose Gossage, Lee Smith, and Trevor Hoffman have since joined him. Uh, Braves manager Brian Snicker says, We lost a good friend last night in Bruce Suter. Bruce was the first pitcher to reach the Hall of Fame without starting a game. Born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1953, drafted by the Washington Senators in the 21st round of 1970, he was only 17 and too young to sign. After a brief college stint at Old Dominion, he returned home and was pitching for the semi-pro Hippies Raiders in the Lebanon Valley League when a Cubs scout spotted him. Suter pitched twice for the Cubs team in his rookie uh, Gulf Coast League in 72, and he hurt his right elbow trying to learn the slider. Afraid the Cubs would cut him if they knew he was injured, Suter scheduled his own surgery and used his bonus money to pay for the operation. Imagine that happening now. Uh, they don't pay him enough to, do, to pay for their own operations now. Uh, unable to throw as hard as he could previously, Suter had the good fortune to learn a split-fingered fastball from Cubs minor league pitching instructor Fred Martin during spring training in 1973. said nobody was throwing what he called the split-finger. It was a pitch that didn't change how the game was played, but developed a new way to get hitters out. Everybody who throws the split-fingered fastball owes a great deal of thanks to Fred Martin, who died back in 79, because he was the first one to teach it. The pitch, and I, I learned to throw one when I was messing around with it, you know, playing around with the other people down at the, uh, the park, and uh, I just couldn't throw it very hard because it, it hurt your arm to throw it. In fact, it ended up hurting his arm, I think, over work as well. 
but it could really put a strain on your elbow if you threw it. It was because you're trying to throw a fastball, but it's coming out of your hands slower, and your arms whipping and coming to that stop. But you're not getting the satisfaction of releasing a fastball and rolling it off your fingers as much. It was it's a weird feeling. Try and do it, and it would split your fingers. Not everybody has the hand to do that. Uh, by the way. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. It suddenly dips as it approaches the plate. It had been around for a while. A former big leaguer Roger Craig used it when he played for, the, I think, the Giants and the Mets. But a lot of people didn't use it successfully. Now, Roger Craig, I think, is the uncle of a friend of mine, Laura. Uh, Laura and Brett, who I officiated their wedding a few years ago. They live up in Tennessee. And she used to talk about, we were talking about one day, baseball players and something. I don't know how Roger Craig, she goes, well, my uncle's a major leaguer, a great uncle. I said, who's that? And she goes, Roger Craig. Said, Roger Craig. Holy cow. But anyway, uh, let's see. He, you know, he managed the Giants for a long time. Uh, Suter says, the pitch came easy to me, but it took a long time to learn how to control it. I could throw pretty hard. I might strike out 16 guys, but I would walk 10. It was wild. <laughs> Suter debuted with the Cubs in 76. He won the Cy Young in 79. 37 saves, 2.22 earned run average, and 110 strikeouts. Overall, he was 68-71 and 71 with a 2.83 ERA overall. 661 games. He pitched over 1,000 innings. He struck out 861. Pitched for the Cards from 81 to 84. Finished his uh, last three seasons in Atlanta. His last save, number 300, came with the Braves in 1988. The Cardinals retired as number 42 years after MLB retired the number in honor of Jackie Robinson. Uh, the Cards said Suter is survived by his wife, three sons, a daughter-in-law, and six grandkids. Chad Suter said his father didn't suffer, and he went, and he went quick, and he went peacefully, surrounded by all his loved ones. I feel like a brother passed away, says Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott, his teammate on the 1982 champion Cardinals. I knew Bruce deeper than just about any other teammate. We spent a lot of time together, and as happens when your careers end, you go your separate ways. But we stayed in touch and considered each other great friends. Got to take a sip here before I tell you a personal thing about it. I have one huge memory about him, even though I was not living here for most of the time he pitched here because he helped me through a tough time. When Bruce Suter signed with the Braves after the 84 season, I thought we'd finally hit the jackpot in free agency. The best closer in the game was coming to Atlanta. I was living in San Diego, working in a record and video store near the sports arena. Now next door was a sporting goods store that had team jerseys. Being a young 20-something and stupid, I took my meager paycheck one week and walked next door and got a Braves jersey, and I had them right there in front of me put the name Suter on the back. That's how stoked I was. I know some adults frown at that, but I was young. Uh, but unfortunately, Cardinals manager Whitey Herzog had overpitched Bruce a little bit, so when he got to Atlanta, it was another Andy Messersmith situation. His best years were behind him, and so were some of mine, as we found out. Uh, that was about the time my marriage was falling apart. 1985, not the greatest year in my pantheon. I had a lot of good moments, but a lot of bad. But every time the Braves played, I'd wear that jersey to work, and it made me smile, especially when other Braves fans would see it and their face would light up, and we talked baseball. Lots of Braves fans living out in San Diego, especially the homesick ones in the Navy and the Marines. In fact, I got away with a DUI once because the lady was born and raised in Decatur, Georgia, and we had plates on the back. Georgia plates on the old Nissan Sentra, and she goes, look, I'm going to tell you right now, this is what you're going to do. You're going to drive straight home. I'm going to follow you. If you even stray over the line, I'm pulling you in. And that's what she did. 
and we got off because we were from Georgia, and so was she. Anyway, Bruce Souter, dead at the age of 69. God rest your soul, sir. I will always think very fondly of Bruce Souter. On this day, October 17th in history, 1860, the first British Open men's golf at Prestwick, Willie Park Sr. won the inaugural event by two strokes and fellow Scott Tom Morris Sr. 1920, the Chicago Bears, playing as the Decatur Staley's, Played their first NFL game, and they won it 7 to nothing. doesn't say who they played. 1956, chess game of the century. 13-year-old Bobby Fischer beat 1953 U.S. champion Donald Byrne in the Rosenwald Memorial Tournament at the Marshall Chess Club in New York City. Bobby Fischer. Movies, books about him. He was a strange cat. Genius. Uh, birthdays. Uh, 1848 on this day, October 17th. William Candy Cummings, Hall of Fame pitcher. He's the guy credited with creating the curveball. Born in Ware, Massachusetts, died in 1924. That's a long life. Uh, 1859, William Buck Ewing, Hall of Fame catcher, nationally home run leader for the 1883 New York Giants, also played for the Reds, managed the Giants and the Reds, born in Hoagland, Ohio, died in 1906. 1924, one of my favorite coaches, Don Coriel, Air Coriel, College Football Hall of Fame, NFL coach, San Diego Chargers, St. Louis Cardinals, Born in Seattle, Washington, died in 2010. Man, his Dan Fouts and Jim Hart for the Cardinals and Fouts with the Chargers. God, they were fun teams to watch. 1928, Jim Gilliam, uh, player and coach for the Dodgers, NL Rookie of the Year in 53, born in Nashville, uh, died in 1978. He died, I think, during the World Series. 1932, Paul Anderson uh, from Georgia, light super heavyweight lifter, won Olympic gold in 56. Born in Tacoa, he died in Vidalia. When I was a kid, back in the 70s, man, Paul Anderson was known as the strongest man in the world. He did all kinds of stuff. 1946, Bob Segrin, pole vaulter and actor, won Olympic gold in 1968 for America. He was on the show Soap. Remember that? Billy Crystal kind of got his start on there, playing a gay man. Born in Pomona, California. Bob Segrin was everywhere in the 70s. 1946, Herb Orvis, College Football Hall of Fame defensive tackle for Colorado, played for the Lions and Baltimore Colts. Born in Petoskey, Michigan, died a couple years ago. 1966, hey Hawks fans, Danny Ferry was born. Played for the Cavaliers, came out of Duke, was the Hawks GM for a brief time, was doing a pretty good job until he was caught in a conference call making fun of Luol Dung, Ding, whatever his name was, and his ethnicity and where he was from, and he was fired. I don't know what he's doing now, Danny Ferry. Uh, probably needs a, he's probably somewhere got a second chance somewhere uh, October 17, 1969 Ernie L South African golfer won the US Open in 94 and 97 the British Open in 2002 and 12 born in Johannesburg uh, let me find Alexa what does Danny Ferry do these days from MarietteBiography.com Danny is active on social media oh okay then well so am I uh, dead people, October 17, 1977, Cal Hubbard, uh, not Carl Hubbard, Cal Hubbard, Hall of Fame umpire of the American League from 1936 to 51. He's also in the Pro and College Football Hall of Fame. I think he's the only guy uh, who did this, at least as an umpire at baseball. Uh, he was a tackle, four-time NFL champion, 1927, 29, 30, and 31. Four-time All-Pro, played for the New York Giants and the Packers, dead uh, cancer. He was 77. Uh, one wedding on this date, 1914, baseball legend Babe Ruth was just 19 years old when he married a waitress, Helen Woodford. She was 17 at St. Paul's Catholic Church in Ellicott City, Maryland, 
not a happy marriage. He, you know, he was a womanizer and everything. wasn't home very much, and he later felt very bad. She died uh, tragically in a house fire, and uh, supposedly drinking was involved and everything. She became, some said, alcoholic over his philandering and everything, and he, he felt really bad about it, but it didn't really change his ways all that much, I don't think. He was a big, just a big child is, is what he was. Time for little Pete's tweets here. Kevin Halk, local entrepreneur, world traveler, put on Facebook a really sad story. Asia Womack was in Dallas, Texas. She was a pretty good basketball player. She's 21 years old. Uh, 7.40 p.m. October 3rd, officers dispatched to the uh, block of Hamilton Avenue in Dallas. They found Womack on the sidewalk with multiple gunshot wounds. Her mother told the Dallas Morning News the slaying occurred after her daughter beat a man in a game of pickup basketball. The man, she beat him in front of his kids and his brother. I don't know if there was trash talking. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It, this guy was so worried to be disrespected. I was dissed. Uh, took his kids and brother home, then came back and shot her five times because she beat him in a basketball game. That some bitch needs to be lined up and shot in the left ball, right ball, his dick, and shot in both eyes. That's just my opinion. We welcome yours. Or just start shooting his finger off. Oh, let's see. What else we got here? Uh, back to the Braves here. The Braves starters, 13 and two-thirds innings pitch, a 7.90 ERA. Uh, their seven through nine hitters were three for 40 with 15 strikeouts. Acuna Jr., Olsen, and Darno went 15 for 43 with eight extra base hits and 10 RBIs. Uh, Codify said, repeat champions during Albert Pujols' entire career? Zero. Kevin McAlpin covers the Braves. In four games in the series, the Braves combined hit 180. That was 23 for 128 with 11 extra base hits. Mm. Unbelievable. Oh, That fireworks display at Neyland Stadium when they won, that was, that was fascinating. Great stuff. What else we got here? Here's a funny line. Steven said, uh, got up at 5 a.m., 8-kilometer run completed, came back, prepared a vegetable smoothie for breakfast. Don't remember the rest of the dream. (laughs) By the way, last night I dreamed the weirdest dreams that I was going to a a restaurant a couple times a week, and the waitress got a crush on me. And then I went to a party, and the late, great Jack Kennedy walked in with a, a... a walking cast on his right foot for some reason. Of course, he was being Jack, the way Jack would always did be. Uh, as soon as he walked in the, the room, man, everybody talked to Jack. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Oh, J.J. Cooper says, we got to fix for the 18-inning games. The Savannah Bananas do this. They put one pitcher, one fielder, and one catcher on the field to settle ties. The hitter has to hit and inside the parker. <laughs> oh, God, that would be funny. What else we got here? Uh, oh, we already did that one. Tom House, former Braves pitcher, called uh, Aaron's 715th home run in the bullpen. Now he's a pitching guru. Says, if I'm MLB, I would never have shown that drone on camera during the game of San Diego that they had a drone uh, stop the game. It only encourages copycats with signs attached to the drones. It's basically drone streaking, next-gen streaking. He's got a point. Eric O'Flaherty said the Padres beat the Dodgers without Tatis. And remember, the Braves won it all last year without Acuna. Mm, what is this? No, that's not. Sarah Langs recently came out and said she has ALS. 
uh, does a great, she's a great follow. Padres won 22 fewer regular season games than the Dodgers, but then win the NLDS over them. That's the second largest regular season wins upset in a postseason series. Only team to win a postseason series with a larger uh, wins uh, upset, the 1906 World Series between the White Sox and the Cubs. The Sox beat the Cubs. They had 23 fewer regular season wins. Um, do, 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 do. The L.A. Times put out an opinion. If there ever was a case for canceling the playoffs and awarding a championship to one team because it was so clearly better than all the others, the 2022 Los Angeles Dodgers would be it. <laughs> and, of course, they put the meme together with Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie where he's laughing while he's drinking something. Uh, Brett McMurphy says, Alabama is not ranked in the top five of the AP Top 25 for the first time since the end of 2019 when they finished eighth. It ends Bama's streak of 40 consecutive polls ranked in the top five. Tulane is ranked uh, for first time in 24 years when the Green Wave finished 12-0 and number seven in the 1998 final poll. Remember that? Amazing. Art Spander tweets, Padres beat Dodgers about as often as it rains in San Diego in October. Correct. NFL and CBS pointed out the Dolphins' sideline was 30 degrees cooler than the Vikings' sideline. The Vikings were over 120 degrees, uh, while uh, the Dolphins was 90 degrees, and yet the Vikings, from the cold-weather climb, still beat them. Of course, the Dolphins, they're losing quarterbacks right and left there. Do, 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 uh, what else we got here sports-wise? Falcons, yesterday, three takeaways, two interceptions, one forced fumble. The fumble recovered for a touchdown by Hawkins, I believe. Uh, rush offense, 40 rushes. That's the most this season. 169 rushing yards, one rushing TD. Uh, the shots of the, the mad and angry and sad Saints fans, always heartening. Uh, John M. Chuckery works for 929 The Game. Marietta pass attempts in a game 20 or less, they're 3 and 0. 21 or more, they're 0 and 3. <laughs> oh, what else? We, what? That's, 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 no, it's not. Uh, Buck Lanford of Fox 5 in Atlanta. Uh, Falcons, who were picked in USA Today to finish dead last in the entire league with only two wins, are now 3 and 3. Afterwards, uh, Arthur Smith was seen in a bar somewhere drinking beers. Uh, PFF ATL Falcons tweets, the Falcons had three 50-plus yard rushers. Caleb Huntley at 59, Tyler Algier, 51, and Mariota, Mariota, keep getting that wrong, had 50. Adam Schefter says, Bill Belichick is now tied with George Hallis of the Bears for the NFL's second most all-time head coach wins. He will try to pass George next Monday night against the Bears. That would be interesting. Uh, let's see. Three, three, I think he's got 325, something like that. Bob Euchre, quote of the day. In 1962, I was named Minor League Player of the Year. It was my second season in the big leagues. <laughs> he also said he knew it was time to retire when his baseball card came out and there was no picture on it. NFL and CBS tweets, Dan Marino retired with the most passing yards in NFL history, almost 10,000 more than anybody else. He is now eighth on the all-time list because Matt Ryan passed him yesterday. Matt Ryan was like 42 of 58 or something like that. Unbelievable. And, and they beat the Jaguars. So Ryan turned it around. Uh, Codify says, Cal Quantrill in Cleveland, in his career, regular season games, 34-0. Postseason games, he's 0-1. <laughs> one start, one loss. Uh, First Lady Jill Biden was booed by the Eagles crowd last night in liberal Philadelphia. 
Uh, good luck finding a video of that. Imagine if it was any other first lady. The Hoosiers. Ah, the late, great Jeremy Ferguson is probably not happy. The Hoosiers are the first NCAA Division I program to get to 700 losses after losing to Maryland 38-33. to uh, In fairness, Indiana has been playing since 1887. Mm. Their first game in, uh, in history was a 40-2 loss to Wabash College. Uh, a few years later, in 1891, they fell 60 to nothing to Purdue. And the next year to the Boilermakers, they lost 68 to nothing. No Indiana coach has left the program with a winning record since Bo McMillan did it in 1947. He went 63-48 and won. Hmm. Uh, this uh, Dayton baseball history, October 17, 1885. Baseball sets the all-player salaries at $1,000 to $2,000 for the 1885 season. That was good money back then. Uh, 1960, at the Sheraton Blackstone Hotel in Chicago, the National League owners vote to admit Houston and New York. The first structural change in the senior circuit since the turn of the century. 60 years without anything, anything moving. Uh, let's... Da, da, da. Uh, what else we got here? October 17, 1964. The Yankees finished with a 99-63 record. Fired manager Yogi Berra after losing to the World Series to the Cardinals in the World Series in seven games. The 39-year-old dismissed skipper will join the Crosstown Mets as a coach and then their manager in 1972 after Gil Hodges dies of a heart attack in spring training. 1964, same day, Johnny Keene, rumored to be replaced as the Cards manager by Leo DeRocher before the Redbirds surged to win the World Series, surprises the team owner Gussie Bush with a letter of resignation that he had written at the end of September during the height of the pennant race. The former St. Louis skipper will take the Yankees job after Yogi Berra is fired, and that was a mistake for both Keene and the Yankees because that was the end of the Yankees dynasty going all the way back to 1920. After that, they didn't start winning again until 19... I'd say 74-75, and in 76, they were swept by the Reds in the World Series, and then they won the next two. But for most of my childhood, from the 60s all the way up till I was like 14 years old, the Yankees were a joke. It wasn't until George Steinbrenner bought them and put money into it. That their stadium was falling apart. Uh, no one cared. It was kind of like a, it was an analogy for New York City. The place was falling apart. And the Yankees were like – they were no better – to me than the Cleveland Indians were at the time. Both of them just sucked. And I should know suck because the, actually the Braves were better during that period uh, than the Yankees were. Uh, 1966, the Tigers lose the second of two skippers who managed the team that season. 51-year-old Bob Swift uh, died of lung cancer. The former catcher had taken over as the team's interim manager in mid-May for Charlie Dressen, who had a heart attack and died before the end of the summer. 1971, Roberto Clemente hit a fourth-inning homer off Baltimore's Mike Cuellar to put the Pirates ahead 1-0 in Game 7 of the series. The right fielder has hit safely in all seven games, a feat he also accomplished in 1960 against the Yankees when the Pirates beat him. He had a consecutive hitting streak in the series, 14 games. Also on that same day, uh, more on that game at Memorial Stadium behind Steve Blass's complete Game 4 hitter, the Pirates beat my Orioles. Uh, and Cuellar, the heavily favored Orioles, to capture their fourth world championship in franchise history. Immediately after the Game 7 victory, 21-year-old rookie Bruce Keyson and his champagne-soaked best man Bob Moose whisked away by a helicopter to a waiting Learjet to go to his wedding in Pittsburgh. He arrives 33 minutes late as a World Series champion. What a day. She could not possibly be mad at him. He was a side armor, too, I think, Bruce Keyson left in. 
the, that was two years and three that the Orioles were heavily favored, 69 over the Mets, and that year against the Pirates, and they lost both of them. They won 1970, though. They beat the Reds. 1974 Baseball World Series, Oakland A's three-peat, beat the Dodgers 3-2 in Oakland for a 4-1 series win. The MVP, Raleigh Fingers. 1979, Game 7, Willie Stargell, 3-4, a third home run in the series. Pirates win 4-1 over the O's. The Bucks overcame a three-games-to-one deficit to win their fifth world championship in franchise history. Once again, watching my Orioles lose. The Orioles were the first team I followed because I was, we were living up in Washington, D.C. in 67 when I was six, and I was just starting to pay attention. Uh, 1979, uh, at Baltimore's Memorial Stadium, the same day we're talking about, Jimmy Carter, the president, threw the ceremonial first pitch. It was the first and only time uh, the commander-in-chief performs the pregame ritual during his presidency, which is only four years, thank goodness. Rick Dempsey, the Orioles catcher, said, next time, get your ass here before the seventh game. <laughs> that was a quote. October 17, 1985, Billy Martin, who had become the team skipper for the fourth time at the Yankees' fired Barra in April, again, he's replaced by Lou Pinella. Billy the Kid piloted the Bronx Bombers to a 97-64 record, but second-place finish two games behind Toronto. 1989, Al Michaels, the ABC TV play-by-play announcer, reacting to the Bay Area earthquake, said, well, I don't know if we're on the air or not. And they were, they, the picture wasn't there, but I remember hearing him talk. I'm not sure uh, I care at this particular moment, but we are. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. We're still here. We are still as we can on the air. And I guess you are hearing us even though we have no picture and no return audio. And we will be back, we hope, from San Francisco in just a moment. Of course, it was delayed. Uh, The Loma Prieta earthquake hit the Bay Area. 63 people died. Uh, They postponed that game and uh, ordered the evacuation. And I was out there, man. Candlestick, they used to talk about it. It was high up, that press box. And we always uh, had Jeff Ellinger. I used to joke, you know, if the big one hits, we're doomed. Because this place is going to collapse after it survived the other one. You know, there's no way it's going to survive another one. So, thank God they tore that place down. 1991, John Smoltz shut out the Pirates 4-0. The Braves beat the Pirates in Game 7 of the NLCS to win their first pennant since moving from Milwaukee. Brian Hunter's two-run home run in the first inning is all the runs that Smoltz needs. 1996, the Braves put up the biggest blowout in postseason history, beating the Cardinals 15-0 in Game 7 of the NLCS to complete a 3-1 comeback. They were down three games to one, and Brian Jordan of the uh, Cardinals ran his mouth. And Smoltz barked back, and the Braves crushed them. The Cards were the only club to blow a 3-1 to one, uh, game edge three times in the postseason. October 17, 1999. With the bases loaded in the bottom of the 15th, Robin Ventura hit a home run, became known as the Grand Slam single. Uh, the Mets fans went nuts. Uh, they lost the first three, three games of the playoff series. They extended the NLCS to a game six with Atlanta. Failing to touch all four bases when mobbed by his teammates on the paths, the Shea Stadium hero only gets credit for a single with the umpires awarding New York a 4-3 victory, ruling Roger Cedeno crossed home plate before the on-field celebration began. Of course, the Braves went on to win that series. Uh, 2005, the juiced Minute Maid Park crowd anticipating the Astros' first National League crown after the first two batters were quickly retired is pulverized when Albert Pujols hits that two-out, three-run, ninth-inning homer a uh, two-strike single struck by David Eckstein and a walk worked by Jim Edmonds set the stage for the Cardinals' dramatic 5-4 comeback. I'm trying to remember, 
Brad Lidge was the pitcher who gave up. And I remember when uh, I was watching on TV, when he hit that, I was like, oh, my God. That, if, the wind, if they had closed the dome, I think it was open, it would have gone through the window, in my opinion. Maybe it did anyway. It, it was a, I've never seen a home run go that far in a postseason game. Unbelievably blasted. And everybody just shut up there in Houston. He was like, oh, you poor bastards. But Brad Lidge, I met him several years later after that. And not several, a few years later after that. Couldn't be a nicer guy. Really nice guy. Pitched for the Braves for a while. 2021, the Braves walk off the Dodgers for the second straight game as Eddie Rosario ends it with a single off of Kenley Jansen in the ninth that scored Dansby Swanson to give Atlanta a 5-4 win. By the way, Kenley Jansen is another one of those you know, free agents that the Braves have to think about, and they're, ta- they're thinking about bringing him back. I mean, he saved a lot of games. Kind of shaky. Thanks to Saturday Down South, ESPN on this day, National Pastime, CBS Sports, WPDE.com, and DogPost.com, and you for listening to this extremely long, and hopefully the computer didn't just shut off because I've gone too long here. Let's see if we missed anything on Twitter. Won't keep you too long here. Uh, let's see. Uh, not seeing anything here. Jumping out. Let's go. Huh. Ole Miss has got a thing going now. If you want to sing the national anthem there at Ole Miss before a sporting event, you can now sign up to audition. That's nice. That's very nice. Uh, All right, let's go to ESPN, see if there's a headline, and then I'll let you go. Hell, the computer probably shut this off an hour ago, but anyway. Uh, Carson Wentz is going to have surgery on his finger. Cardinals have traded for wide receiver Anderson. Uh, Cardinals got uh, Robbie Anderson from the Panthers. Uh, So he's disgruntled with Carolina. Who isn't? Falcons need to to win games up there. They need to win both games against the Panthers this year. Titans have released Josh Gordon from their practice squad. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, It'll get better, the Braves. Just think about the Dodgers. (laughs) Hotty toddy and uh, drink up, Shriners.